to worship the Lord, but most of all to fellowship with one another as well. Let me get this thing straightened out here. Thank you. By the way, before we get started, let me uh, wish you all, uh, from my family to yours, from me to you, a uh, very warm and precious Chinese New Year uh, blessing, and I wish you the pre peace, the presence, and the promises of God, and also the strength and the Spirit of the Lord be on you. Uh, I don't know what this year holds. Uh, you probably do, but I don't. And so I'm just going to be prepared for everything, and whatever God has for us, praise Him and move along. In, in His power and strength. And I hope that this will be your experience as well. Now, speaking of Chinese New Year, uh, on television, you might have noticed there's been a series of uh, little snippets, you know, like maybe a minute, minute and a half, where they tell a story, a very heartwarming story about a uh, family, uh, maybe a younger member of the family and an older member of the family. And uh, one of my favorite ones is the one put on by all people, Ikea. Ikea. You probably have seen that one, right? So there's a mother and daughter. They're in the kitchen. They're preparing all the wonderful dishes for Chinese New Year, right? And they're gone, you know, and they're just fierce, you know, and they're really wishing that every dish contains a, thanks, a, 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 a precious Chinese New Year blessing, right? Prosperity and so on and so forth. And so they go through this for a few minutes, and their faces are just fierce, you know, and they're just like they're fighting. They're competing against each other. And then finally, the food lands on the table, and the family's around the table, and they just start smiling at each other, and they start nodding at each other. And I thought, that was so cool, and put on by Ikea, of all people, you know, that they would capture for a moment what it is to be a smiling, happy, loving, respectful family. And so, those elements are important to us, isn't it? It's all important to us, and they serve as a strength. They're not a weakness. They are a strength for us. And so I look forward to the reunion dinner I'll be a part of later, and uh, I'm sure that you will too. Now, in the family of God, such deep devotion and love and respect is also expected of us. How do we know this? Well, for example, in that very famous passage, John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, Jesus said this, a commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so, this whole idea of devotion, loyalty, love, and respect, and all of these things all combine together. And God knows what that powerful uh, combination can bring. And so, He wants the family of God, all the brothers and sisters in Christ, to develop this particular virtue. So, when we think about this a little deeper, we have to understand that being a part of the family of God is more than just a smile, a greeting, a pat on the back, or something like that, or even a warm handshake. It goes way beyond that. It goes way beyond that. It may start there, but it goes way beyond that. And so, what does it take? Well, that's what we want to do today when we go into the Word of God in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And to make sense of this, you have to go back to start and, and start with verse 1 and work your way on to verse 16. 
So God wants his children to relate to one another on a far deeper level than we ever thought possible. And he reveals to us how this is possible, all right? And so that's where we're headed today. Now, just kind of a quick review here is we are in the middle of, we are beginning in a series of messages called the one another passages. The Bible has many, many of these one another passages. And so we discovered last time that we preached that the one another uh, uh, passages uh, give us a portrait of Christ. If you take apart each one of these one another passages, they are one of the characteristics of Christ. You put them all together, you got a portrait of Christ. They are also a compass to Christ. They point to Christ. Because oftentimes when he talks about the one another passages, he speaks like this. He says, as I have loved you, or as I have shown you, or something of that nature. So it points to Christ as a compass. They also serve as a magnet for a Christ-like community. Because when you take the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 2, it was what the what the, the, the early church displayed that attracted people to them. It was like a magnet. It was an irresistible force, as it were. And so these one another passages can serve as a magnet. Also, this week I'd like to add that they, it, the one another passages can serve as a foundation to grow in Christ. A foundation to grow in Christ. It has been my experience over these many years of ministry that one of the most powerful tools that we have is both possessing and living out the one another passages. When you do that, it gives you a credibility. It gives you a foundation. It gives you a platform on which to talk to people about Christ and what it is to grow in Christ. Some people often say, how come the church isn't growing? How come I'm not growing? How come this isn't growing? You know, in this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's because the body of Christ has not, is not practicing these one another passages. And so when we speak, we speak in a vacuum. And so people say, why should I listen to you? You're not even doing it. So why should I listen to you? You see? And so we have to be careful here. The one another passages are essential to being a foundation for us and others to grow in Christ. Again, The world is watching, and God wants uh, the world to find a genuine community truly transformed by the living out of the gospel. Make no mistake. That's what the world is looking for, and you and you and you and me, we're all part of that that can make that happen. We can make that happen. Well, how are we going to make this happen? Well, let's go to verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12. What does it take? First of all, it takes thinking differently. It takes thinking differently. A significant change in thinking in each believer. What is this transformation of thinking that God is talking about here? Well, it start, it's a two-step process. The first one, the first step is that it takes us to be consecrated or dedication of oneself to God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So, step one of this process of thinking differently is to consecrate or dedicate ourselves to God. Look at how it falls out. He uses the word therefore. Why is he using therefore? Okay. In seminary, they taught us a trick. 
When you see there, what is it there for, okay? It's there for because it points back to all the things that were said in Romans chapter 1 through 11, okay? All these great truths that Paul laid down. He said all of these graces, all of these mercies, all of this love that God has shown us serves as a basis for us to give ourselves to God. And so, like what? Well, for example, our salvation. If you can look at Romans chapter 5, for example, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Wow. For it... For uh, if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Pastor Oliver did an excellent um, piece in preparing us through the Lord's Supper. And that's exactly what happened. It was by His grace that it all uh, happened. Also, another place is Romans chapter 6, just over the page, verses 12 through 11. Therefore, there's that therefore again, do not, let, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, if you take all of that together, what is he saying here? He is saying that God has made it possible for us to be freed from the power of sin. You know, before we were saved, we pretty much are helpless whenever our lust takes over. But when Christ comes into our life, when lust raises its head, we can actually say no to it. We can actually deny it. We can stop it in its tracks, cold. How? By the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Word of God. All of these things. See, there's all of these mercies and graces God has given to us. Said, therefore, he says, because of all these things that preceded by the mercies of God, this extravagant love and grace God has shown us, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And this means offer oneself completely to the Lord for any purpose. It's living life according to God's holy ways and will. It's fulfilling His plans and purposes. It's glorifying Him with all that we are and do. You see, sometimes we just... <laughs> the prob- <laughs> Many writers have noticed that the problem with living sacrifices is they're always crawling off the altar. <laughs> okay? We always we say, I give you my life, O Lord, and then we take it back in the next minute. You see? But he says, give it to the Lord and keep giving it to the Lord. And this is what he is asking, he's commanding us to do. And he says, why? Because which is your spiritual or rational service of worship? The word spiritual there is where we get the English word logic. Because of what all that God has done for us, consecrated consecrated devotion is giving our lives to him. And it's a conscious, intelligent, and reasonable thing to do. So, changing our thinking, what's it going to take? It's going to take a conscious decision to surrender ourselves to the Lord. No bones about it. No debate. No negotiations. No hedging. It says, Lord, take me. 
and use me for your purposes. Let me be yours wholly and totally for whatever you want us to be. But there's a second step. Look at verse 2. And he says in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, he says in, in, uh, in uh, that verse, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, he says. And so when we come to this part here, you'll notice he says uh, these, these words. Now, I like the way the New Living Translation says this, so I'm just going to digress for a minute. This is what the New Living Translation says. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect His will really is. Boy, that's a powerful translation. And that I can really relate to there. First things, not conformed to this world. In other words, the Romans, the Roman Christians were allowing themselves to conform outwardly to the standards and codes of behavior of the world. It was almost like, if in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I'm in Rome, so I'm going to live as the Romans do. And so Paul says, let's put a stop to that. Let's put a stop to that. Don't be so quick to behave and think and act like the Romans do. And then he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This word transformed is where we get the, uh, this Greek word is where we get the word metamorphosis. It's the outward, it's the outward correctly displaying the inward, okay? He wants them to be consistent, okay? And so... God says, look, if you're going to live this way, you're going to relate to people at a more and a deeper level, okay? He says, it's going to take, first of all, you're giving yourself to God and then changing the way you're thinking. So we have to think differently. Consecration, dedication, I think some of you grew up in the day when they used to call this surrendering yourself to God, those type of things. That's when I grew up. And it says, it's not preached much today. It's unpopular, it's really unpopular, and it's easily dismissed as archaic and irrelevant, but it is really important. Why is dedication so important, okay? Look, I'm not the brightest guy in the room, all right? I know that, probably far from it. So all you people who are much smarter than me, praise God, all right? But this is how it works. If you give yourself to God and you say, Lord, use me, Okay, I'm here for whatever you want me to do. No questions asked, no negotiation, no hedging or any of that kind of stuff. It brings down the excuses and it makes way for obedience to the Lord. It clarifies and simplifies what we need to do and why we do it. All right? It leads us out of the maze of rationalizations that stunts our spiritual growth and spiritual service for the Lord. Have you ever thought about that before? You know, we know what God wants us to do, but we hem and haw around and we start saying to ourselves, oh, but this, oh, but that, you know, oh, it's not the right time, you know. And before we know it, we've talked ourselves out of it, you see. But if we have given ourselves to the Lord, there is no 
hedging. There is no negotiate. There is no hesitation. You see? So this idea of consecration, dedication, and surrender to the Lord is very important to us. And so if you're a young believer and you have not done this yet, then you ought to really investigate this. You ought to lay yourself before the Lord and ask him what he would have you to do. If you have been a Christian for a while and you haven't done it, shame on you, shame on me, all right? Because we are just delaying the inevitable and what God wants us to do. So, give your life to God to use for any purpose he has in mind for you and then change the way you think so you will know what he wants you to do. Before we can relate to one another more deeply, we have to dedicate ourselves to the Lord and then change the way we think. All right? It's not so easy. It's not so easy. You just don't come to church and we sing a couple of songs, love one another, God is love, and all this kind of stuff, and suddenly you're in love with everybody. It doesn't work that way. You have to wrestle with who you are. And you have to become what God wants you to be before you can do what he wants you to do. All right? And so it starts there with dedicating our lives. Secondly, it takes evaluating rightly. It takes an accurate evaluation of who you are to one another. Can't stress this enough. We touched on it the first sermon, and we didn't have time to fully develop, but it's more fully developed here. In Romans chapter 12, starting with verses 3 and on through 8. Now, this takes evaluating ourselves personally. Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Well, what does that mean? Okay, he says, don't think of yourself too highly like, man, I'm really good. I'm really good. Have you, have you seen? Have you, you haven't seen anything yet, man. This is really good stuff, you know. No, you're haughty. You're proud, all right? That's what it is. You're not, you've gone way past self-confidence. You've gone into a whole different level, stratosphere of pride. You're haughty. He says, don't do that. And then he says, but think so as to sound judgment. Again, the New Living Translation, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. And the faith here is does not salvation faith, but it's the kind and quantity of faith needed to use your spiritual gift in the body of Christ. You know, as strange as it may sound to you, I have run into more people in the churches that I have pastored that don't believe that they can do anything for God. They have so little faith <laughs> that God had really gifted them to do something significant for them, for God. And so this is what happens here. And Paul warns against this. He says, look, sit back for a minute. Evaluate yourself personally. Don't go too high. Don't go too low. All right? But think rightly. Think rightly about who you are. Then he says, we have to evaluate ourselves biblically. Verses 4 to 8. And this is, concerns our role in the body of Christ. Look at verses 4 to 5. He says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, 
Verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, he says. We are interconnected. We all need each other. We don't have the same function, that's for sure, but we are still part of one body, and we are members of it, he says. So get it straight in your head. Good, bad, or indifferent, we are all part of one another here, okay? You, someone out there may say to themselves, hey, man, I'm better than this group. Another person says, I don't deserve this group, and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of people in between. But he says, we need each other. That's the fact of the matter. And he gives us different gifts. So it's not only our role in the body of Christ, but our gifts for the body of Christ. Verse 6 to 8. Okay? Verses 6 to 8. And so if you look at verse 6, for example, he says in that verse, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. All right? And so what are these gifts? Well, Paul goes on to list them, and this list is not limited to just here in Romans. But if you look carefully at Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, you'll find a similar list. In fact, you'll find some gifts listed there that aren't in here. So this is a sampling. This is one list. Now, some of you are looking at me kind of strange, and you're saying to yourself, hey, I already read ahead. And I'm not sure I understand what these gifts are. And I'm not sure I have any of those. Okay? Well, let's see. Let's see. The first gift that he lists there is the gift of prophecy. He says, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith. Now, prophecy is not so much the gift of being able to tell the future. All right? As some of us might like to think. Okay? How many of you can tell me with great confidence what the Singapore stock market will do tomorrow? I mean, on Wednesday when it reopens. Can you tell me? What, what's going to happen to the stocks in China? Can you tell me? Tell me what the stocks are. Tell me so I can go and invest my money and get it ready. All right? Okay? Can't do it. You see? This is not what the gift of prophecy is. Gift of prophecy is public proclamation of the word of God according to the message and truths of the Christian faith. That's what he means by proportion of his faith. The faith that was given to the saints through the apostles, okay? This is what he means. Then he goes on to list the gift of service. The gift of service is similar to the gift of helps. Broadly speaking, this means practical help, practical help. Now, I dare anybody in this room that says, I can't help anybody. I can't help anybody. We can all help some. We can help somebody go down the stairs out there so they don't trip. We can help somebody find the refreshments that are outside. We can help somebody find their car. Sometimes I lose my car in the parking lot, okay? We can help, all right? Then he lists the gift of teaching, the ability to interpret, clarify, and systematize, and explain God's truths clearly. Gift of exhortation. And this gift here is where one is effective to call believers to obey and follow God. Now, there's two portions to this. I, I had to stop and think about this because normally when you think of exhortations, you think of negative, right? You think of something negative. Don't do this, right? That's, that's what you normally think of exhortation. But actually, in the Bible, 
uh, exhortation involves both correction and admonishment, or it involves comfort or encouragement. There's both that are seen. Now, who's right, who's wrong? Neither, because both of them are legitimate, okay? There would be some people who believe that if I have the gift of exhortation, it's my role to tell everybody off. (laughs) It's my role to correct everybody. But if you have the gift of exhortation, maybe your calling is that you should be called to comfort people and to encourage people. There's two sides of this coin of exhortation, see? And they're both found in Scripture. Now, the next gift is gives. Okay? And this is gift, uh, this ability to give sacrificially to meet the needs of others with the attitude of generosity. Okay? Now, I happen to know a person who had this gift. He was the person who was uh, handling student affairs at Dallas Seminary. And this guy was unbelievable. He didn't make that much as, a, as, as a working in the seminary. But he constantly had the stream of seminary students who would come and they would sit before him and they would say, I have this need and I have that need. And oftentimes he gave the example of where he was moved by, the, by God to open his wallet and to give the student what he had to get through for that day or that week or that month. And he said, inevitably, after he would give it, he says, then God would lead someone to come up to him and say, God just led me to give you this much money to use to help somebody. And he would. But it started with him giving sacrificially. Him giving sacrificially. And some of us have that. Some of us have that ability, all right? But don't rule it out as the only gift. Another one is leadership. And this says, leads with diligence. Literally, that word means stand before, to preside, or to give leadership. And so, he says, we should do this seriously. Now, it is beyond me. It is beyond me. It is truly beyond I am baffled at the number of people that I see in this church that I truly believe have a gift of leadership. I really do. And leadership is just not being able to tell people what to do and they follow you, okay? But this is spiritual leadership. And this has a lot of dimensions, and we can't talk about all of them now. But there are more of you who have the gift of leader, spiritual leadership than believe it. Then this is where you're denying your faith. This is where God has shown you and is showing you that you do have it. But for whatever reason, you're not ready to use it. And so you need to really take stock sit back for a minute and say, Lord, if you said, Lord, I'm all yours. Whatever you want for me, however way you want it, I am willing to do it for you. If you have that mentality and if you have the gift of leadership, this church will not have a problem with fielding a leadership team. All right? So, leadership. Next one, showing mercy. This is a special gift tended to, uh, a special gift where people have a way of attending the sick, relieve the poor, uh, care for the aged and disabled, and they do it with an attitude of cheerfulness and gladness. I was, I was running around trying to figure out an example, and then thank God for the straight times, you know, because early part of the week, they talked about the Singaporean of the year, the Singaporean of the year, 
And it turned out to be this person who saw an elderly person soil themselves, and they went and they personally tended to that person. I'm so glad that person won that award. How many of us would have been willing to do that, to show mercy and compassion on somebody? You see? And so these things exist. So many believers don't realize or use the spiritual gift they have. Those who do use them should use them with proper amount of faith and humility. If you're not using your spiritual gift, find and take your place in the body of Christ here and beyond GBC. You are supposed to use that gift. We need each other, and we will be healthier for it. Now, so before we release, relate to one another more deeply, we need to evaluate rightly both our place in the body of Christ and also the gifts that we have for the body of Christ, okay? It has nothing to do with human, um, with, uh, human ability or capability, but has everything to do with what God has given to you to do. Now, I rush because I want to get to this last one. What else does it take? It takes loving deeply, loving deeply. And this is found in verses 9 through 16. It takes a deep love for one another. Paul not only instructs us on what it takes to relate to one another on a higher plane, but he also instructs us on how it happens practically in a daily uh, fashion. Now, the key to this is verse 9. Verse 9. What does verse 9 say? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And so, what happened here is love, uh, love is the key virtue. The New Living Translation says, don't just pretend that you love others, really love them. Okay? Really love them. Where do we see this? He says, it ought to be without hypocrisy. It is pure, honest, and sincere. Straight off. That's what he says. None of this phony baloney love, okay? Uh, I'm really tired of seeing these... Uh, American awards for entertainment, and the, <laughs> you know, I love y'all, I love y'all, you know, and everybody loves everybody, you know, and oh, man, you know, I can't see their heart, and I'm going to assume that they truly do love, but it, it seems to me pretty impossible to love everybody, okay, but they, they say they do, but without hypocrisy, this has to be honest and sincere love, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, despise or hate bitterly uh, evil and then cling or be glued or cemented and, uh, to what is good, all right? So he says, that's, that's, that's the parameter. That's what we're going to make work here. Why? Because love fuels how we fulfill our duties and our attitudes and actions to others inside and outside the family of God, okay? That's how it happens is that love fuels, the, it provides the fuel for us to carry out our duties to one another inside the family of God and outside the family of God. How do we know this? Okay, look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 to 13. Be devoted, or in some, many of your translations it says, love one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, he says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. All right? And so, with all of this said, with all of this said, he says, be devoted, in verse 10, be devoted to one another. 
In other words, authentically loving, tenderly devoted, full of tenderness. Cherish one another as those in the family, in a, in a family. Okay? This would be the same kind of love a man should have for his wife and his wife for the husband. Parent to child, mother to child, father to child, brothers and sisters. Okay? Now, keep that in mind. Mark that. All right? Mark that. This is how we should be loving each other. Give preference to one another in honor, it says. And we'll talk about more of this uh, next week uh, when we come back and revisit some of this. All right? But for now, to say our duty is to be devoted to one another in a brotherly fashion, in a way that we would a family. The attitude, the attitude that this should be carried out is with enthusiasm and endurance, verses 11 through 12. Look at the words he used. Not lagging behind in diligence. Don't be lazy. Don't be apathetic. Don't be slothful. Be fervent in spirit. Literally, it means boiling over. Have lots of energy and enthusiasm. Serving unto the Lord. I am doing this for the Lord. Okay? I'm not doing this to win brownie points with my wife. I'm not doing this to win brownie points for, with my husband. I truly am doing this for the Lord, and I truly love this person, it says. It says, rejoicing in hope, being glad in the hope of Lord's return and our final redemption. And then preserving, persevering in tribulation, patiently enduring while under pressure, and devoted to prayer, steadfastness in prayer. That's the attitude that we should have. Now, all well and good, but how might this look out in the first century church? The Acts, verse 13 if you look at verse 13, it says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Okay? In other words, when he says, contribute to the needs of saints, to share or contribute financially or materially to the needs of others in the body of Christ. And then number two, practicing hospitality. Literally, practicing hospitality can be translated fond of strangers. In New Testament times, inns were evil and expensive. People opened their homes to others. And this was a hallmark of the first century church. Okay? This was a big deal. Now, it may not be a big deal for the, uh, the 29-room HDB that you have. Okay? This may not be a big challenge. But for these people who had one-room houses, this was a big challenge have strangers come into their home. And that's exactly what was happening here. And so, the duties, the at attitude, and the acts were very important. These were the things that would happen because we loved people. But Paul didn't limit it to just people in the church. He also addressed the issue of people outside the family of God. Verses 14 through 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So what is he saying here? The attitudes and actions that should be displayed towards those outside the family of God were this. Blessings to those who persecute you. And then rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be genuinely glad for the blessings and honors others get. Be sensitive and compassionate to those who suffer heartbreak, hardships, sorrow, and sadness. And then 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lonely. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Same mind means to be, not to be partial, but to be impartial. Impartial. Accommodate the lowly. So, when you think about this, take yourself back to the first century church and how people treated each other. There was more class consciousness, slave and free, royalty and non-royalty. There was all kinds of stuff that was going on. And Paul dared to say that in this environment, I want you to truly love one another. Not pretend love, but real love. That is all of these things that he has listed. It is, not, it, it is clear that a casual, on-again, off-again commitment of love will not suffice. It takes consecration to God and proper evaluation of how we are spiritually gifted to keep this going. So we are to love one another deeply we can, so we can relate to one another deeply. Now, all this to say, let me rush to finish this off. Now, and I want you to be late for your reunion dinner, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be the excuse that you give, all right? First of all, I want you to start seeing the significance between healthy relationships inside the church and healthy relationships outside the church. I'll confess that much of how, of who I am today is because of the church I came from, okay? The church I came from, we started in a house. We were young people. We dared to take God at his word. And as a result, we dedicated our lives. We surrendered our lives to the Lord. And after that, we never turned back and looked. We never turned back. We had our ups and downs, that's for sure. But we got through it. And so the, it's very important that how I run my family, how I, how I relate to my children, how I relate to family and friends is all a byproduct of the church I came from. Because we had a very healthy church. We had a church that really loved one another. People would go out of their way for one another. It was a marvelous thing to see. And in the same way, what's the connection between healthy church and healthy relationships both inside and outside the church? If the church is healthy, the relationships outside the church can be healthy and vice versa. You see? What, how would you, what would you think if this church were to really, really practice the one another passages? How might that change how you as a parent relate to your children? How would that change how you relate to people who are not family members, but just friends or acquaintances? It would be totally different. So there's a significant connection between the two. There are great benefits and blessings for both. When church relationships are healthy, there will be healthy spillover into our relations outside the church and vice versa. When there's fault finding, fighting, and feuding in one, it will spill over to the other. If there's a lack of authority in one, it will spill over to the other. When there's a lack of concrete love in one, it will spill over to the other. However, when there is an abundance of love, respect, and cooperation in one, it can spill over to the other. Now, isn't that something? Isn't that something? 
but you have to see it. Now, the next thing to do is start small, okay? You might want to start with your own natural family, relationships between spouses, parents, and children, brothers and sisters. Maybe you want to start with your care group. Practice what you have heard and learned today. Eventually, the whole church will be infected with love and devotion and your family as well. Start small, okay? Don't start by standing up in there and just say, I'll start now. I love y'all, you know. <laughs> and start going up and hugging everybody, you know, and, you know, and giving them hong bao and, you know, red envelopes and everything like that. Tone it down. Start small and build out, all right? The last thing is start somewhere with someone right now, okay? The last thing I want to hear is that someone said, oh, great set of notes, Pastor. I, I love it. I filled in everything. I got them all, you know. Nah. I praise God you have the good notes, but what I want you to do is take those notes and put it in your heart and go out and live it. That's what I really want you to do, okay? So, relating to one another at deep level takes thinking differently, evaluating rightly, and loving deeply. It's not for the faint-hearted, but for those who are wholehearted for the Lord question. Where is your heart today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that on the eve of perhaps one of the greatest opportunities 